I would ask that we remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. We continue in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Uh, I'll read verses 30 through 34 this morning, introducing this next section to us uh, in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, beginning at verse 30. Let us hear and attend to the reading of God's Word. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before him and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Among the benefits of progressive exposition of Scripture through books of the Bible is being challenged with the whole counsel of the Word of God. And that's what we're doing in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, now coming uh, through the middle of the sixth chapter, we're going to continue on, uh, God willing, till we come to the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. And we're being challenged with many, many things, with a whole counsel of the Word of God. Uh, we're not picking and choosing the things we like or the things that we don't like. And I really defy anyone to say that it's boring, not, not in reference to my weaknesses and, and struggles to present it to you, but just in terms of the variety and the wonder and the uh, um, amazing realities that are revealed to us about Jesus as the Christ and, and the height and the, the depth and the breadth and the length of the wonder of how this addresses us in our life of faith. So there are some passages, stories, and teachings that are less familiar and perhaps we're not as fond of those less familiar ones. And then there are those other passages and stories and teachings that are on the greatest hits list. I think a good example is found here in the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 where we've come. We just finished that disturbing story of the martyrdom of John the baptizer. And now the following story of Jesus miraculously feeding the multitude of 5,000 plus his walking on water. So we have two of the greatest hits, Jesus feeding the multitude of 5,000 and plus, and then also of Jesus walking on the water. But do we make the connection, as the Holy Spirit led Mark to arrange it in this way, that it follows on that gruesome story of Herod Antipas and his uh, murdering John the Baptizer, the prophet of God? I think sometimes that we read these stories in a detached or kind of a fragmented way, just like we're changing channels on the TV. Oh, okay, let's go over to the next show now. We saw this show, now we'll turn over to another show. We need to look at the comprehensive purpose of God and the way that the Word of God is presented to us. We know that, yes, there is benefit and value in the synoptics in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're looking at these various um, aspects of the life of Jesus and his ministry from different perspectives, adding to us different information. And then the Gospel of John, as we'll find out coming to uh, this story of, of Jesus feeding the multitude, that's, that's covered in all four of the Gospels. So it's, it's significant to us, certainly is, but let's not detach it. And let's not become uh, disinterested. Oh, I've heard about the feeding of the multitude so many times. I mean, the bread and the fish, they sat down, you know, they gave them food. Are you that disinterested? There's so much more. It's so much richer in its details. So 
Mark arranges a profound contrast for sanctified dramatic effect between the weak selfishness of Herod Antipas at his birthday feast, serving up the gory head of John the baptizer on a platter as the piece de resistance. Can you imagine? Here is a great birthday party, maybe a party you've been to, a big celebration, and you're expecting you know, the cake to come in at the end or some fancy uh, meal has been prepared and you're waiting for the climax when the, the final course comes in that's been prepared that's supposed to be really fantastic and you bring in a severed head of a prophet of God. How grotesque and perverse that is. Don't lose the impact of that following from that is the story of Jesus, his self-giving and his compassion, overcoming the weakness of the faith of his followers. He even overcomes the weakness of his own apostles and their faith in this context, in this story, by the power of the gospel. And that's what we've been emphasizing throughout the gospel of Mark. And as we're in chapter 6, the gospel conflict in this sinful world is against unbelief against disbelief, against false beliefs, and against weak belief. But saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. You and I need to hear that. I mentioned this morning uh, in our uh, being called to repentance before God. We need faith memory. We have the Lord's Supper set before us this morning with Jesus' words, Do this in remembrance of me. We need to remember what Scripture teaches us about the power of the gospel overcoming unbelief in the world and even at times our weak belief like the apostles and even others who followed Jesus at times in their weak belief. So we come to this next section, verses 30 through 52. Weak belief from not keeping Christ-centered Scripture testimonies and teachings. Now I know that this is a lengthy passage. It's rich in details. So we're going to study this passage in installments. I'm not going to cover all of the verses 30 through 52 this morning. I'm going to give you an overview and a, and a, a foretaste, if you will, a little appetizer or um, um, hors d'oeuvre of what's coming in this uh, beautiful and rich passage to feed our souls. Weak belief. We're being challenged. The whole counsel of God challenges us with our weak belief. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. Weak belief comes from what? Well, in this context, we'll find that it comes from not keeping Christ-centered scriptural testimonies. You and I need to be challenged with that with the whole counsel of God. When we read Psalm 23, it needs to be Christ-centered because He is our good shepherd. The Lord, who is the Lord? Jesus is our Lord, and He is our good shepherd. It's identified for us with greater detail and uh, application and understanding how He is our good shepherd. He's also the Lamb of God. He's also the priest. All of these things folding together in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, giving us a fuller understanding and a, a fruitfulness in our own conscience and faith for who Jesus is and what He's doing. We're not losing anything because we're studying the life and ministry of Jesus and what He did then to know better what He does now. So weak belief needs to be challenged. We need to keep Christ-centered Scripture testimonies and we need to believe the teachings of Jesus. So as I said, let me give you a little preview this morning. Look, if you will, at verse 37. Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to Him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Look at verses 49 uh, through 52. And when they saw him walking on the water, 
They supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. See, Mark connects Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the multitude of the 5,000 plus with Jesus walking on the water as he rescued his apostles there out on the sea. But he turns this to a lesson about weak faith, keeping Christ-centered scripture testimonies and teachings. But they didn't understand. They were afraid it was a ghost. They didn't understand because their heart had been hardened about the miracle of the feeding of the multitude. Does that cause you to scratch your head a little bit? I hope it does. We're going to come back and have a lot more to say about that because it's very rich in details. But we need to be challenged about our weak faith as well. Look at verse 31. And Jesus said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Look down at verse 36. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. So Jesus recognizes and validates the need for retreat from public ministry for a time of relaxation and reflection and restoring of body, uh, mind, and spirit. But even this is subject to the providence of God fulfilling the great commandment, that we love God first and our neighbor as ourselves. Now that sounds very obvious, doesn't it? I know it sounds like I'm stating the obvious here. I think, though, this passage becomes very convicting, maybe in ways that we haven't thought about in the whole counsel of the Word of God. Let me just give you a little hint. Really? You're going to go up to that church again? We need a break. What did the apostles say? Send them away. Send them away to find their own food. They need to, they need to take care of themselves. What did Jesus say? You give them to eat. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So, see, even the most obvious and stated points, we like that part about having a break. We like that part about coming apart and getting away (laughs) from people for a while. But what we struggle with in the weakness of our faith is that God's providence overrules even when we feel that we need a break. The Lord will give us what we need and sustain us and provide for us. But we must be obedient, even when we have to lay aside our plans, our rest, our recreation, our me time, because providence says it's Lord's time. Now Mark's narrative is rich in details about Christ-centered scriptural testimonies. I want you to see some of them here. We're going to come back and revisit some of these. Look at verse 33. But the multitude saw them depart, and many knew him. And ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. They saw him. Many knew him of the multitudes. They knew him. They recognized him. Uh, Flip back over just to keep the context here in uh, chapter 6 to verses 14 and 15. Do you remember this? Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. Who? Jesus. And he said, oh, John the baptizer is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, no, it's Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, referencing the great prophet Moses, or or like one of the prophets. But all of this generated around 
Jesus being known. Jesus being well known. So Jesus' name was becoming well known and associated with its Old Testament origin. Remember this. What is the Old Testament origin of the name Jesus? Remember the angel said to, to his father, his, his earthly guardian father, Joseph, you shall name him Jesus. He shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. He is the Savior. You know what the Old Testament origin for the name Jesus is? Joshua. Yeshua. Savior. The covenant God, Yahweh, is salvation. He is our Savior. His name was becoming well known. You and I may not quite make the connections as we should, but Jesus means Savior. Jesus is the greater Joshua. It's very interesting that in Numbers 27, Moses prays to God and says, Send the people, someone to watch over them, uh, because they are like a sheep, not ha- they're like sheep not having a shepherd. That's the very phrase that, that Moses uses in praying and asking God. And you know what God says to, to uh, Moses? Go find Joshua. He's the one that I'm going to prepare in your place. Jesus is the greater Joshua. That's why Jesus took the words of Moses' prayer and acknowledged them before God. He looked upon the multitude as sheep not having a shepherd. The shepherd motif is used throughout the Bible. Look at verse 34. We just referenced, And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. The shepherd motif throughout Scripture is used by God to reveal His saving grace. It culminates in Jesus, who is the Good Shepherd, who came to seek and to save His sheep. And we reference Psalm 23 this morning. We confess Psalm 23 together. I know that you know that Psalm. You've probably known it from Sunday school or from being a a knee-high child if you were raised in a Christian family and if you were raised within the church. And you can quote Psalm 23. But can you be called to remember it in faith? When you're challenged with the disturbing and unsettled and uncertainties of living in this sinful world, that Jesus is your good shepherd, can you keep that scriptural testimony that Psalm 23 is fulfilled in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, raised up from the dead, entered into heaven for us? He is priest and sacrifice in one, and he continues to intercede. And he continues to shepherd. He is called the good shepherd, the great shepherd. And he gives gifts to his church as under shepherds. That motif carries through into the New Testament as well. It's beautiful. Ezekiel talks about the need for godly shepherds and not false shepherds in uh, disguised who are wolves come into the flock. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that same idea and warns us. So this is an important and rich Motif that we find in Scripture, in the, the Christ-centered Scripture testimonies, the Good Shepherd. And then on in the second part of verse 34 into verse uh, 35, um, so he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Now Jesus providing for the multitude in a deserted place, not only with food, but with prophetic preaching of the word of God greater than the manna and greater than the prophetic word which even includes the law of God that was given uh, to the Israelites by Moses so here we have the Lord Jesus 
He's moved with compassion upon the multitude that gathered together and he taught them many things. Don't skip over that. Oftentimes we want to go to the spectacular. We're excited about Jesus feeding the multitude. But what did he do before he fed them as he was moved with compassion for them? He fed their souls. He taught them many things. He provided for them with the prophetic preaching of the word. And he tells us actually in reference over in John's gospel, chapter 6, that his word and teaching to them was greater and more satisfying and more important than even the manna that their forefathers had eaten in the wilderness and died. But who eats this bread will live. The bread of his teaching, the bread of his truth, the bread that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The bread, the, 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 the truth, the preaching that he gives his body, he gives his blood to be taken in by faith as a greater reality than what we eat with our mouth. So powerful, powerful things that Jesus is fulfilling in Christ-centered scripture testimonies. He's greater as the bread of life than the manna that came down from heaven in the wilderness. Look at verse 38. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. So Jesus miraculously multiplying a small amount of food, five pieces of bread and two little fish. I'll, I'll explain more about that. And I think that here collectively the number seven is also important. I'm not going to press that out of measure, but I think it witnesses to God's perfection. And we'll talk more about what these things symbolize and mean. They were real. It was real pieces of bread. It was real fish. But by them, Jesus uh, feeds over 5,000 in a demonstration of God's greater presence and power. There were feeding miracles that were well known. You probably know about them too through the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. Uh, I've given you the references there in First and Second Kings. But what we're being uh, uh, revealed, what's being revealed to us in Christ-centered scripture testimonies here is that Jesus is greater than the prophet Elijah or the prophet Elisha. His feeding miracle is multiplied far beyond what Elisha and Elijah did. And so there's a, an impact being made. There's a point to be made in the, the vast multitude. I'll, I have more to say to you about how we calculate that, that, that we're told it was um, 5,000 men elsewhere, that there were women and children also. And we don't know the exact number, but we can, uh, you know, give a little sanctified speculation. There was more than 5,000. Five barley loaves and two sardine fish, two little pickled fish. And Jesus feeds a vast multitude. How can you not make the connection that with Christ-centered scripture testimonies, Jesus is greater in his uh, being prophet and in his powers demonstrated by God, validating his claim, than the great prophets Elijah and Elisha. So you see the point of weak faith? By not keeping the scripture-centered testimonies about Christ, forgetting who he is without the, the obvious witness, he's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Elisha, the renowned prophets of God. Look at verse 39 through 40 and then verse 43. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. 
And then over to verse 43, and they took up 12 basketfuls of fragments of the fish. So Jesus, having the apostles arrange the people in ordered groups to whom the 12 apostles served and took up 12 basketfuls of uh, leftovers, symbolizes and previews the new covenant fulfillment of the old covenant. I want you to think about this. When you read this, did it connect with you? Think of the arrangements of the 12 tribes of Israel around the tabernacle and the 12 loaves of showbread, the bread of the presence before the face of God. So here is a greater reality in terms of the new covenant that's coming of the arrangement of the people in ordered groups around Jesus who is the living tabernacle of God. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He spoke of the temple of his body. Here they're arranged around Jesus in an ordered groups according to the direction Jesus gave the apostles. And then the apostles go out and minister them and provide for them. The twelve apostles. The twelve apostles of the new Israel of God. And twelve basketfuls of fragments are taken back over as leftovers. We'll say more about that and talk about the significance of the twelve apostles and the arrangement there. We don't know specifically, and I don't want to press that out of, of too much, Uh, in terms of the companies of hundreds and fifties. But the idea is they were in ordered groups around Jesus. Jesus himself is the living tabernacle of God among men. And the 12 apostles are his new appointed heads of the new kingdom of God. And they go out and they minister to the people in the power of Jesus. And then look at verses 49 and 50. And when they saw him walking on the water, they supposed it to be a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked to them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. You see, not keeping Christ-centered scripture testimonies and teachings results in spiritual malnourishment. Along with foolish, unscriptural imaginations and fears. Do you fight? Do you struggle? with fears and with your own imaginations? Do you get your eyes of faith off of the Lord Jesus Christ, off of the clear Scripture testimonies telling us and revealing to us and affirming for us who Jesus is? And do you start looking into the scary things in the world? Now, many people's world has come to an end. The the social and cultural world in which we live may indeed erode and come to an end in in things that we have long cherished in terms of civil liberties and, and a particular form of government and things of that nature. There can even be local and devastating wars and violence. But I'll tell you, my Christ centered scripture teaching tells me that this world belongs to God and to his Christ and not to the rebels and the devil and the world. I don't believe that the world is going to end with a nuclear holocaust. That doesn't mean that there are not local and limited types of um, wars or, or bombs or whatever that can destroy people's lives, that can destroy cities. We've seen it happen throughout history over and over. We've seen it happen. Whether it's, it's um, hardened mercenaries riding in on horses, killing everything in sight, or whether it's carpet bombing with new technology, or whether it's a limited threat of atomic explosives, or whatever it might be. Many people's worlds have come to an end. But the kingdom of God is forever. And this world doesn't belong to the devil. 
It doesn't belong to the rebels against the Lord and His Christ. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been given the world, the earth, for His footstool, and He will rule it with a rod of iron. You think Jesus is absent from this world? There are those calling for the end of the world next week sometime. But the kingdom of God goes on. There's sable rattling from the east and from the west, from Korea and from Russia, from Syria, and you know who knows where else. Dirty bombs being smuggled in in a bowling bag. Do you stay up at night worried about these things? Do you focus on these things? I know it's unsettling. I think more about my children and my grandchildren in that regard. But you know what I know? The power of God is greater than the power of evil. And I believe God will keep them in the day of trouble. That's what I'm talking about, keeping Christ-centered scriptural testimonies and teachings when we're faced with weak faith and when we're faced with foolish and unscriptural imaginations and fears. So I do plan to revisit this application as we go back through more detailed exposition of this portion of Mark chapter 6. And I want to ask you this question, and I hope you'll keep it before you as we expound more and more of the details of this passage. How do we keep Christ-centered Scripture testimonies and teachings? I think we have a forgetful faith. You could tell me about many of the details. Oh, I remember Jesus took the bread and the fish. Oh, little boy. They found a little boy that had it, didn't they? Oh, I remember that it was 5,000, but they said it was 5,000 men. So I remembered that there were more than just 5,000 there. I remember even some other accounts and details of Jesus walking on the water and, and Peter walking out to him and reaching out to him. And I remember some other details about that. So it's not that you have a faulty memory from knowing some basic scripture knowledge and stories. Do you have a forgetful faith? You see, what do these stories mean? How do you apply them in your life of faith in keeping Christ-centered testimonies and scriptures when you have fears and imaginations that want to keep you up at night? When you're constantly listening to the airwaves who are telling you the world is coming to an end, the world is coming to an end. Doesn't that promote an urgency in us about the power of the gospel? Rather than throwing up our hands and wanting to hide under the bed and run away? You see, that's the difference between faith and our weak giving in to our flesh and getting our eyes off of Jesus. I believe that you need to know more about this scripture, what it teaches about Jesus and what we're to remember and and in our faith what we're to remember. So as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to remind you of the words of the Lord Jesus Do this in remembrance of me. Once again, do you get to the details? Oh, I remember that the bread represents his body. The cup of juice or wine represents his blood. So I'm remembering that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus is not testing your memory. It's not a quiz. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is calling you to faith. Do you believe that I am more real to you I am present with you. I will never leave you or forsake you, even in this present evil age. More than this bread or this cup is to your physical senses. Do you believe that I will keep you now and forever?
As we often say, this is the Lord's table. We celebrate it in remembrance of the Lord Jesus in the body of Christ, in the visible church, 